Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Get Found, a weekly web series dedicated to uh, all things kind of digital marketing, strategy, search content, etc., or anything else that we want to rant about this week. Um, joining me is Steve Farnsworth, uh, CMO of Steve Steveology Group. Steve, welcome. Do you want to introduce yourself and say hi? Hi, everybody. This is Steve Farnsworth, and uh, it's good to be here. I actually run a little content marketing uh, agency for B2B. Uh, high-tech firms, and you can find me on Twitter at Steveology. Awesome, and uh, I um, work at Ginza Metrics, which is a search and content marketing platform um, for enterprises and agencies. So this week, um, because it is nearing up on the end of 2016, if you can believe it, uh, we are talking a little bit about some kind of 2016 internet trends, and also with kind of an eye toward what might be going on in 2017. And I think one of the places that we were uh, both talking about earlier today was, you know, this revenue um, and growth in advertising spend with Google and Facebook. And you were mentioning kind of the extremely large percentage, over 70% of kind of all internet advertising um, is kind of spent there, right, in Google and Facebook. And, you know, what we're really looking at with Facebook, Facebook's having a larger increase, but Google has such an enormous share of yeah. revenue dollars. And so one of the things I was looking for when we were kind of getting ready to kick the show off is how much money is being spent in marketing as a whole kind of year over year, right? Because I'm interested to know specifically is are all marketing dollars increasing or are people allocating funds just differently to advertising? Um, and what does that really mean for things like search? Um, so one of the things that, you know, we in the search industry always like to kind of tout as our situation is that with advertising it stops paying it stops working when you stop paying for it and with search you know if you actually really create great content that is you know relevant and findable it will continue to show up and yield traffic regardless of whether or not you are continuing to pay to send somebody there yeah there was a great there is a great little diagram it's oversimplistic but it just showed basically you know search is great if you if you uh, want low cost long term goals and uh, paid paid advertising is great if you want highly specific targeted instant results but they're more expensive and I think that's that's not entirely true but I think that's kind of a good framework to go from but uh, I think the days of even looking at content creation um, separately you know organic content creation stuff separately from paid advertising I think those days are, are, are actually long dead you know, because I, everybody, I think you almost even even now. I mean, just to kind of like not only for like straight lead gen stuff, but when you want to get your stuff out there, like even to kind of grease the skids, other than you're already your own channels, your own media. Uh, paid is a nice way to help kind of get a little rocket fuel to get a little more earned media. And I, and I think that um, I have the pleasure of working with marketers with some regularity, um, and and sometimes they, they come in like when we do a, a training. To hear that kind of this idea that they, that they think that, you know they, our company wants to do more social, but we don't have any additional dollars for for anything else, not even really for social. And it's like there's no there's no such thing as free social anymore. If you want to have a cute little Twitter channel or whatever, um, and just do stuff and you don't really care, that's fine. But if you actually want to use it as a, a platform to help drive traffic back to your website, paid is going to be a part of that. And I and I think that's why you know Google's uh, has like around was it. Um, they own the biggest share, like 30, uh, 
total sorry, they're like twenty billion dollar plus um, uh, for for advertising for Google. That's pretty pretty huge. Facebook's a little smaller than that. I think they did a total of around seven or eight percent versus. I mean, uh, yeah, about seven or eight billion versus the kind of the the gross numbers that Google's hitting. So it's it's kind of interesting. Others, uh, you know, Facebook grew fifty nine year over year. Um, versus only 18% for Google, but Google is much larger, uh, much larger piece of the thing. And I think it's because of the nature of search and findability. Yeah, I mean, the you're totally right in the idea that trying to separate out paid efforts from search and organic efforts is a thing of the past, right? I don't think you really should consider picking one, right, as it stands. Um, this concept that you are going to do one or you're going to do the other or you're going to do one over here and the other over here is crazy. And, you know, we talk about this, we talk about this when we were kind of talking about account-based marketing and some other things, which is really, if you're not having everybody who's responsible for understanding what's going on with your brand, how people are finding your brand, how they're interacting with it, what that kind of overall experience looks like. Because the fact of the matter is somebody's probably interacting with your brand via both paid and uh, and organic methodologies, right? And so you need yeah. to really understand both and those people need to be talking to each other. So housing those people in separate places and maybe talk, getting them to talk to each other once a quarter or once a year, um, you know, is, is not a strategy, strategy that's going to work moving yeah. forward. And a lot of the things that we saw in this internet trends report, um, you know, from this year kind of really point to that, that like these types of uh, strategies that keep people, you know, doing this one thing here and doing another thing here, just that's not how it's going to work. You know, it's, <clears throat> there, it's amazing that uh, traditional models in terms of like, uh, even above kind of that the raw, uh, raw advertising dollars where uh, Facebook and Google own about 76% of the all ad dollars, which is a little scary, but it's, there's still about, uh, one of our other slides that Mary had was, was about kind of the time spent media versus advertising spend. And, and, it's, and there's like 65% um, are still, still traditional mediums like print, radio, and TV. And, you know, but almost all half of all users are spending almost like half their time uh, online and particularly on mobile. The numbers are just huge for that. And, and there's still like this really big gap in terms of what people are are spending in turn on mobile, which surprising seems like this is a great place to interact with people, and I don't quite know why. There's not if it's just uh, people are just still stuck in kind of traditional stuff, not really being open and not seeing the opportunity. Uh, a lot of marketers, marketers by and large, aren't very cutting edge. They kind of tend to wait to see what other people do, um, and mobile is not being aggressively attacked, and that's that's the most surprising part of this to me. Do you think that if we delved into it and broke it down that we would see that the difference in marketing spend from desktop versus mobile falls mostly the onus and the disparity falls on B2B? So like B like B2C, like consumer-based marketing is all up on some mobile, right? Like they seem mm. to be jumping on there, like they're doing Snapchat and you know, like really engaging in a lot of really different kinds of stuff. Like one of the slides in, in the deck, um, by the way, what we're referencing is Mary Meeker's 2016 Internet Trends um, deck, uh, which is available on SlideShare, um, and we'll include it in the show notes for you afterward, uh, is one of the things that's that's in this deck that's really interesting is, um, you know, companies using like mobile messaging to do stuff. So I think there's an example in there of like Hyatt or something where you could actually do, do room service by using uh, Instant Messenger. You can do um, like 
mobile check-in to your rooms now and they'll like send you offers directly on your phone there's tons of shopping apps and uh, coupon based apps and things like that 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 work on mobile but what do we see from like the b2b community side right because there's a huge amount of marketing spend there but i really truly feel like the majority of what i see from those of us in kind of the more b2b space is still is still desktop driven you know it's, it's funny I, I think you might be right i i I've, some of my clients are, are pretty deep tech, and I, I had one client who, uh, even though they had a fairly complex product, they they worked directly with a lot of manufacturing, which isn't always the most cutting edge uh, software folks. And and my clients told me emphatically, I said, you know, your website's not responsive. And this is like all of like two years ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago, and I said, I said it's not responsive. I said nobody's really looking at our website using mobile. And I said, you know, like half of all internet access right now is mobile, right? And he said, no one's, no one's really coming to our website looking at, at it. So I, I love when clients tell me that. I had already set up, uh, had them set up the Google Analytics. I went and generated some reports. And, and about 20% of their traffic was coming from mobile. And, and it had almost 100% bounce rate. And, and so I said, this is, what you're, this is the business you're losing. And I think that there's still that kind of that mindset, that B2B things that uh, their customers are on mobile, and they are. There's a, you know, I had this conversation with folks a few years ago and it's like a few years ago it was almost forgivable um, because it was a few years ago, but even then it didn't seem acceptable. But there's this idea that B2B marketing collateral, especially for big enterprise tech a lot, is traditional things like white papers and case studies. But we've talked about the fact that like one, a lot of these things like white papers and case studies can be made to be more image heavy or video, which people really like consuming. And two, I know that somebody one time told me nobody's gonna read a white paper on their cell phone. I was like, have you ever been to a Starbucks? Do you not just see people like standing in line you don't even see anybody's eyes anymore. I mean, that's that's what they're doing, right? And this is when they have time, when they're, um, you know, on public transit, you know, commuting into work, or when they're waiting for an airplane at holiday season, and they're stuck in uh, O'Hare Airport for six hours. That's when people do consume things, and because if you if you've decided that the only way somebody's going to consume a piece of content is on the desktop what you're telling them is that is the only place they're going to consume it so if they wanted to consume it on their cell phone while they waited in line at starbucks they're now just not going to read it and you know what they're going to do they're going to go look for something that is available yeah. in that format you know yeah i think that that's, that's that's really on target i mean we are in the age of uh, content in your pocket and if you're not creating content using multiple media so people can like listen to a podcast on their way to work, uh, watch a, a, a video when they're in bed at night, or read it when they're waiting in the doctor's office to go in, if you don't have your content displayed and, and taking advantage of those, you're, you're, you're definitely missing the opportunity. Um, I watch people all the time read fairly uh, – I, I, one of the things I have, one of the creepy uh, things I do is like um, when I work in the city, when I have clients go up the city, I often will take BART up. And I love kind of looking over everyone's shoulders to see how they're interacting with their mobiles. It's always kind of fascinating. And, and I see people read everything from kind of being completely visual in terms of the way they interact with their phone, just pictures and, and doing that, to people reading a lot of dense text. And I think that you, you have to visualize, when you have to think about the content creation here, is that you can't have a white paper that's read on a phone. The key is to make sure you're, you're writing it in a way 
which uh, has headers and subheads and bullet lists and things that people can see and so they can kind of skim through it more comfortably and read the, all the text if they want to. And, and there are a lot of apps that even help you read stuff on your phone. So I, I think that shying away or assuming that uh, mobile's not it is, uh, it is a missed opportunity and it's ignorant. Yeah, I mean, and so for the other thing that, I mean, I don't know if anybody else has been paying attention, but phones are getting freaking bigger and bigger. So the screen that you used to have, right, I mean, was teeny tiny and uh, was almost impossible to deal with. But, I mean, phones, not only are the screens larger, but the resolution is better and your yep. ability to kind of zoom in and zoom out and interact with it is so much better. I mean, if you're really creating responsive content, um, you know, or having a responsive website with content that fits well within that schema, I don't see any reason that both B2B and B2C aren't leveraging this opportunity. But I do feel like that disparity between, um, you know, where people's advertising dollars are spent and where people's marketing dollars are spent is is maybe that b2b audience who really doesn't feel like mobile is quite their thing yet yeah you know there just some kind of correlation is one of the other things in the um the internet trends report mary meeker's internet trends report um is global ad blocking uh ver, you know versus uh, users you know web versus mobile or desktop um and it's like right now i think desktop is kind of uh, is is kind of, it's still growing, but kind of flattening. But if you look at the uh, mobile ad blocking stuff, it's it's skyrocketing. It's just it's just huge. And and one of the, and if you look at the data, it says like uh, basically um, basically one in five <laughs> smartphones now have ad blocking uh, blockers installed on the uh, mobile browsers. One in five. So that's that's pretty huge. So if you're not so advertising makes sense. You still can deliver ads given certain platforms, right? So it makes sense to still contact them. But if people are are feeling overwhelmed on their phones, they're blocking, and they're having all these strategies, if you don't have a deeper strategy to connect with them, like creating content that speaks to the things that they're actively searching for and looking for, you're you're you're, you're that that's a missed opportunity. Also, um, ads are, are good, but they're kind of blunt force, and you know, content that, that actually draws people and builds trust. That's how you're going to get around that kind of stuff moving forward. And I think the the ad blocking situation and what you're creating ads for versus you know how you want to like what actually looks like an ad or feels like an ad or how it engages with somebody speaks to the conversation that we were having about millennials, right? And how millennials and I guess what we're calling Gen Z, um, you know, kind of interact with and handle their content consumption and how many devices. So I think one of the things that was really interesting was millennials, it says like easily uses two screens at the same time and the next generation is five. And I'm like, I don't even, I don't think I have five screens. I know I have, you know, like my, uh, my computer, my, my laptop, uh, my phone, and I have an iPad that I only use when I'm traveling. But I, I don't know what my other two screens would be other than maybe my TV, but I, I can rarely do all four of those at the same time. And I, don't, I don't even know how that how to handle that. Yeah, I definitely see people use, you know, three, four, and five screens in 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 places that tend to be more about work-related and information-intense situations. So I find five screens would be a little hard to believe, but famous last words, right? Um, no one's ever going to take the horse and carriage away. These cars are just a fad. Um, <laughs> But I find that five screens seem it seems a, a lot for kind of sitting around, you know, watching TV or whatever. Uh, one of the you know just but you know even like with TV, one of the things that's happening, uh, they talk about 
user shared videos views on Snapchat and Facebook is growing just is, is blown away. Like Facebook, um, uh, you know, uh, video views per day, like on average, like in uh, Q3 um, 14 was around like one. And end of uh, last year, it was up to eight for Facebook. And Snapchat is uh, up to 10 video views a day. And so it's just, you know, they shared uh, customer, you know, uh, consumer created content views are just screaming up. And so video is still, you know, video is still a huge place where people need to be. And it's, it's funny that Snapchat is like basically outpacing Facebook in terms of video views. I think the video, the video thing that I think is good for millennials that or for the future generations that most I think because we were talking about how like marketers aren't always necessarily on kind of the cutting edge and especially B2B marketers tend to kind of wait and see what's happening um, is that people have this idea that to make a video it has to be this highly expensive highly produced polished up thing right and I mean look at this show obviously not polished great content obviously like not this super polished thing we don't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars we don't spend any dollars um, other than what it costs to run the internet in the house but I mean nothing about creating the content and what comes from this the content that we create afterwards um, required a production studio or anything like that and I'm not saying you even have to go as kind of rough as what we do but I know that traditionally what would happen is people would hire an agency and the agency would say it's gonna cost us five hundred thousand dollars to create this video for you right or this commercial and so I think a lot of traditional marketers or people who have been in the video creation game and started out with that idea from what commercials used to be and what these really expensive ads um, and fancy like online Super Bowl ads and YouTube videos used to be because you know like people are, are charging hundreds of thousand dollars to create viral YouTube videos but like the best stuff a lot of times doesn't really cost anything um, like that Chewbacca mom you yeah. know thing so like that that whole situation I just feel like if you're and we said this a couple weeks ago if your idea is that you're not using video because you think that it needs to be super expensive and take six months to create this highly polished thing you're really missing the entire opportunity and kind of the point yeah no I, I think you're right I actually just got into a debate last week with some uh, senior marketers about this and and the, this one person was from a, a a multi-billion dollar company where we're talking about video and and they said well you know we can't really we can't do any of that stuff because we have so many liability issues and they were in a um, highly regulated space and so they all their videos have to be super tracked which I which I would see if I would talk to the lawyers and see if there's an option to, to do something a little more free form but um, there was another company a couple of years ago it was about three or four years ago that spent around uh, $20,000 per video to create uh, five videos, so hundred thousand dollars to create these five videos, short videos they were gonna put on YouTube, and they put them on YouTube, and and they got tens of views each, tens of views each, you know, and so and they they went ah oh, video sucks. So somebody in the, in the company went around with like a little smartphone or a little camcorder, went to the cube and interviewed a, an engineer, and said, you know, you, you know, hey Joe, you tell us what you're working on this thing, tell us about that. And Joe spent sitting in his cube in front of his computer in a work day chats about this thing they put it on on there and they got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of views for this little gorilla style video and so uh the folks actually go you know what we get it How, you know so there's a certain gorilla has a certain um rawness and immediacy and authenticity right and highly polished videos are the opposite of that and so i think that while there's a drive to want to do the best videos you can 
I think you need to stop and focus on sound quality, lighting, quality of the video stuff. Those are more important than having this nicely, you know, multi-cut, multi-camera, all that kind of stuff. And so what the company did smartly is they went to each each department and they created a video kit and, and they, they, you know, cameras and tripods and, and lights and all these basic things. And they gave classes on how to use that. And then they let their employees go and create videos for whatever area they wanted, you know, relatively to create video content. I thought this is really smart. This is kind this is actually really creating content that's more immediate. And and that's the kind of way I think you need to approach it these days. And it's funny because authenticity is such a buzzword. Um, and you know, it's sad that like it's sad that it's a buzzword because it's true. Um, and so I hate using buzzwords, but like it it's a real thing that you know, I feel like a lot of times you and I, because we chat for a few minutes before we actually start the show, and you know, the the stuff we talk about before and after the show, I usually think is every bit as good um, and sometimes better than the things we talk about on the show itself. And there's like a rawness to just the conversational style that you get to bring up and the things that you get to say versus, you know, rehearsed, kind of overly formatted, a little bit stiff. Um, and often disingenuous, right? So one of the other things that I've tr been trying to explain to people too is whoever in your company is passionate about doing the things that you guys are doing is somebody who should be speaking, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even if they are a little less polished than maybe, you know, somebody higher up the totem pole, that excitement and passion will overcome a lot of lack of polish and polish can come with practice. You want the people who seem excited. There's nothing worse than getting kind of this like stale rehearsed right. regurgitation of something that somebody wrote and asked somebody else to say on camera. It's the worst. The place that I do believe that people, if you're going to spend money on video stuff, the places that I think that are good to spend money are on reusable video things that are part of like, let's say onboarding or training or product walkthroughs, things like that, where you're actually trying to show somebody how to use something that's like highly specific um, that you can keep for a while. Right. Then I'm, then I feel like, yeah, you know, like if you're going to dole out some cash, that's probably a good time to do it. But for stuff like what we're doing, I mean, just get out there, get it done. Um, one of the things that we were talking about before the show uh, that I thought we had some kind of fun conversation about uh, that I think is interesting because I believe that it's part of this big conversation around like where millennials and future generations will go because it's going to be more native to them than it is to unfortunately like you and I um, is uh, voice based search yeah. and, and like all the conversation uh, voice based interfaces and consumer benefits and like really what that all means. And we were having the conversation about our own personal interactions with that because you now have your Alexa and I have a car that does voice-based search, but it's the newer version of it. And we were talking about how both of us were a little bit skeptical when we each got a hold of these things when we were like, eh, we're never gonna use it. And now both of us are always like talking to, you know, you to Alexa and me to my car. Yeah, I, so I was given, uh given the um, Echo Dot. In fact, when you said the word Alexa, my Alexa it is doing it again. It, it, it wakes it up and just like waiting for the next command. But um, I was given to me as a gift and, and I, I was actually kind of, kind of discouraged initially because I thought, you know, I've done a lot of the voice activated stuff, Cortana and all that, you know, and I really had bad experiences and, and you know, you know, do X. I don't understand. Do X. I don't understand. I just, you know, I was like, Meh. but the Echo um, and, and the Alexa uh, character that they have for it, 
is is actually pretty accurate. And so part of thinking about how this works is kind of thinking about the difference between um, chatbots, machine learning, and AI. And if you look at chatbots uh, as being kind of uh, task-specific, highly focused things, and I think that's kind of where the, the it works really well because I can ask questions about I can get news briefs, I can get the weather report, I can ask what my next appointment is, I can add something to my to-do list, I can set alarms, I can do all these things and it's pretty handy. And, and I, don't, I haven't even bought this stuff like changes lights and changes heaters and all that kind of stuff. And I, I would be inclined to do that. And what I, when I first got it, I, I started researching and I thought, well, you get it and you put it near your computer. And it's like, no, that's actually not, a, not at all. This is like the, these are the first, this is the first, first meaningful foray into truly a, a, an automated home that's run through a voice because people are basically talking about putting you know you put one here on your computer and you put one over here in your kitchen you put one in your bedroom with music stuff and you need the different levels you can do it so you can walk any place in your house and talk to this 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 uh you know basically voice uh chatbot and it's going to just get better we're going to start to see more machine learning in it and at some point we see more ai and and this is and that's going to have the ai part of it we people the ai part is passing they uh google hired ray uh Kurzweil, who's a famous futurist and wrote a book called Singularity and, and he did an interview a couple of years ago and, and if you, it's fascinating to hear him talk about it because he's fundamentally looking he's using the knowledge graph which has a couple, uh, couple hundred thousand related concepts to it as part of this uh, as AI stuff and what will happen in search is you'll wake up and your AI your, your, your little bot will say Morning, Steve. You know, today you have your first meetings to be at 10 o'clock. You probably should leave by 8.30. Uh, you're going to want to take a coat. And oh, by the way, uh, there's a new band which, which is getting a lot of uh, notice. And a lot of people who like XYZ that you listen to like them. Would you like to hear a sample? And so you have this recommendation thing that's happening without just from watching what you're doing. And how marketers interact with that is going to be really tough. And Google's already been doing, making this fundamental change for about uh, four or five years, four, uh, since 2011 or so. Five years, and and what they're doing is like recent like uh, anybody who does Google Analytics knows they stop providing keyword stuff for a lot of their information information not provided, and that's because Google has moved moved away years ago from keywords and moved to uh, key phrases and related concepts, and that's where they are right now. And a lot of their not all their updates, but many of their updates are really uh, targeted trying to make people really focus on related concepts. So as marketers now, we have to think about when we, when we write. We can't just say, you know, if our, if our keyword is content marketing, we couldn't just say content marketing. We'd have to talk about content marketing and maybe related concepts about, um, you know, social or, or some other aspect of content marketing or, you know, other kinds of KPIs, related concepts that gel together. So when Google looks at it, it's going to know that it, it that conceptually all these components are related as opposed to just keywords, which is not very helpful. And that's going to be that's happening now. And marketers now need to be able to have that ability to start writing more holistically and away from keywords. Yeah, the the concept around people still looking at keywords as a word um, or a phrase or like or as a you know something simplistic like running shoes um, is really difficult, right? Because especially as um, even searches that are typed uh, are now on average seven words long, uh, five to seven words, and that's expanding, um, you know, away from kind of one or two words a few years ago. Uh, when we're talking about voice-based search, I see those searches expanding to further and further from that. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that 
you're referencing with regards to seeing, um, you know, you wake up in the morning and you get all these different recommendations. It was about five or six years ago that, uh, you know, there was marketing research that said people who shop at Target are also likely to um, drink Starbucks and own Apple products. And this is before there was a Starbucks in every Target um, and before Target sold Apple products. And that was a really early on kind of like a cross-pollination of like, what is the behavior of the type of consumer who shops at Target? Oh, these people are also likely to regularly visit a Starbucks and are also likely to own Apple products. And what they started doing was the actual original, like a lot of Target's original offers were specific for iPhone users and they started making Starbucks products more regularly available and then actually integrating Starbucks cafes within the stores. But these are really rudimentary early examples of people looking at an entire set of behaviors and trying to make offers and experiences that were relevant to that kind of genre of person. So this is now getting even more hyper-personal, right? It wakes you up based on, you know, and like I think it'll actually start to integrate with wearables, right? So like now there's all those things that like uh, check kind of how your sleep patterns are trending and it'll wake you up based on like where you are in your REM cycle and, you know, you just want to be woken up within like a 15 to 20 minute time span of like a certain time. And, you know, I think that all those things are just making it more personal. And that's where we've been talking about marketers needing to go with what they're providing anyway. So if you're really kind of mining and understanding things, and we talked about it from an ABM perspective, right? Which is if you look at life or marketing from more of an ABM perspective, which is you created content to gain that account. Like it was specifically knowing this would be the thing that this person would like. When it comes to Google trying to figure out, you know, how people will figure, like how people will use that, based on topic relevance, they can actually serve you recommendations of like what to read that day just based on all the other things that you've been doing, surfacing up the most relevant content to you. Um, so there's all these different ways that people are going to get to have these interactions and more highly personalized experiences. And it gets to the heart of like what we went through, I believe, for the last five years specifically, which is a lot of regurgitated watered down content that's hyper repetitive. The same listicles, the same things put over and over and over again in different formats or in different ways. And that's not going to work anymore. Give it another year and that's going to be growing obsolete if not if not completely yeah. screwed and you know one of the things that's it's interesting uh one of her other slides talked about kind of the penetration of social platforms visual social platforms like snapchat and such uh with kind of the 18 to 34 year old demographic and in the folks in those those groups are very they they want to have um authentic content, stuff that was created by their friends or people they know, or things that speak to their direct interests. But what's interesting is, is that they are not against ads, they are against ads that aren't relevant. And hence, they, they welcome ads that are relevant. And I think what we'll see is, is things get better, it's just like, you know, talking to your little, uh, your personal secretary in the morning, uh, you know, Alexa, or whoever that is for you, is to... Uh, Sorry, it, I didn't understand the question. <laughs> I knew and, that was going to happen. And that's, that's, my, that's, her, that's her right now talking to me. Um, but 
you know, it's, it's to also like they're probably advertising, but it has to be hyper targeted, hyper relevant. And I think that's what we're going to see is like there probably still be ads even in, a, in an AI world where you bid on stuff, but it, it will be able to go out and go, you know what? There are 30,000 people who really like this kind of music and this would be the recommendation I'd make. Would you like to pay for that? I think that's why <laughs> we saw the growth in Facebook that we saw, right? Because Facebook really has focused on trying to figure out the most relevant way to serve ads based on all the other data that people are constantly pumping in there about themselves. So like as an advertiser, you can delegate a spend amount to what you feel is a really you know, narrow targeted group. And you can actually create lots of different subgroupings um, and things and target different ads to them on there as opposed to saying like, well, I created, you know, these one or two ads and I kind of have to just like use these. This is where we're talking again about if you don't think of creating ads as this highly expensive thing, if you instead allow a video to be your ad, like a video that's created in-house by someone that's just short and conversational, or you create these kind of quick turnaround things that you're not paying $50,000 a pop for, you can not only create lots of different targeted groups, but you can have individual advertising for all of them and you can turn it around really quickly. And that's where people need to start kind of moving their mindset. Yeah, and, and, it, and it gets a little bit more complicated. I believe there's that the best marketers right now are looking at advertising uh, throughout the uh, uh, purchase funnel and looking at, you know, in different levels. I mean, people, like a lot of companies, if you're brand new and all you're looking to do is close deals, you're going to pay a fortune for, those, for those, those leads. And you have to do that when you're a brand new startup. But you, at some point, you need to, like, make it scalable and affordable. You're only going to do that when you start putting... Make, having content and stuff that's throughout the funnel, and you're going to need to grease that by reaching people and getting people engaged at those levels. And I think that having that kind of mentality where it's not just about capturing that one person, but nurturing that person at multiple points, not only through organic, and as you, know, as you were talking, through organic and paid, is going to be what the best marketers are doing. And you can do that now. It just takes, you have to stop and think about it. And a lot of marketers, God bless their pointy little heads, really like to set it and forget it. They like, you know, just, oh yeah, we, you know, check it's all done and and the days of it all being done are, are gone something that needs to be managed uh uh new data needs to be in, in, uh, understood uh and you have to go oh we should test this and that's the scientific approach to marketing which we've talked about years is here today and people who are doing the best having the most success in marketing are approaching it as a data experiment and testing and the i mean that's exactly what it is and it's so hard to get people to understand the thing that we were talking about a few weeks ago with account-based marketing which is this feeling of being handed off or that like now that you're in the system like I wash my hands of you um, like lead be gone um, you know like <laughs> I have accomplished lead so peace um, is this idea that like you as an organization own this person's experience from you know, alpha to omega here. And that means not only do you create content and an experience and like work on serving up things that they can find when you're trying to get them in the door, but recognizing that this person continues to exist on these channels and in these places after yeah. they're a customer. And you need to keep in front of them or you're going to lose your customer because somebody's going to come along with a shiny new toy and they're going to potentially get lured away or even just think that it might be better or you're going to ignore them. And people don't want to be ignored. And it's worse to be ignored after someone courts you. 
right? Yeah. Because then you really feel ignored because you know the difference between being ignored yeah. and not being. So I think that that's a really dangerous game to play. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier with like those kind of the quick interview with the, with the engineer, right? Little things like that from people that work in your organization. And again, I go back to the idea of like find the people that are passionate because that's how you get away from this like watered down, crappy, regurgitated content where you're paying somebody on like a service, you know, 300 to a thousand dollars or whatever to like write you these blog posts. And like these people don't care. They don't work at your organization. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't care, but like somebody needs to actually give a darn about what it is that you're doing and even just getting a quick five minute video from them can turn into a great 500 word blog post that is 10 times more relevant and exciting for someone to read than something you paid somebody a thousand dollars to do um, that came from like a highly polished professional writer um, so you've really got to get it get it through your head that like somebody's experience with your organization doesn't stop yeah. after they click and convert like they're still yours to own yeah i think there's another element too just kind of uh looking at kind of the the way we brand the way we talk to those customers is the uh number of photos that have been shared like on platforms uh even like ones that you can't really track like whatsapp and snapchat kind of dark social where people are one-on-one -on -one. the number of photos being shared is is enormous and and so brands need to think about even with video need to think about yeah, like 85% of all videos uh, watched are are watched without sound. And so, you, if you even if you have a video, you should have still have audio, but you should have a visual narrative in that. And and photo sharing is is huge. is a great way for you to connect with tell part of your brand story. And so, I think being more visual and actually being comfortable taking photos uh, ourselves. Um, you can go hire photographers, and I, but you know, having photos that you're taking or having uh, employees submit photos that they're taking to help tell kind of the story of the company, the people, um, that's going to be that's important now. And, and people are still a little slow to do it. No, no one really cares that uh, you know uh, Joanna was the employee of the month, but you know they do care that maybe Joanna on the weekend goes and works in the homeless shelter, and it started a program that helped get you know several hundred people out of you know, off the streets and into living environments, those kinds of things, or things that your company is doing more specifically around technology or even about how your company and your employees, uh, how you celebrate and the things, what, what things do you celebrate? Those are all ways of telling your, your, your brand sort of visually. And I think there's still this huge hesitation about um, between either doing it and not doing it, but also once you do it, it's like, what do you share? How do you tell a story? This is something that a lot of, I, I talked to a lot of marketers and they're still trying to find their, their their visual voice and how to use some of these these more visual platforms, but it's something that that we need to. The only way we can learn is by by playing with it, do it in some safe spots, and start doing more of it. And I think a lot of people at big organizations feel like they're kind of hand tied by legal and compliance and brand and all kinds of things where you can't just post, you know, like what you did on the weekend or whatever. And we started to try to do this so like as. As our economy became global in scale and as the people that we started working with and relying on for everything, not just for, you know, technology related things, but I mean, now that you can have groceries delivered by Amazon, you stopped having these interactions where you knew like your butcher and your deli person and, you know, all these different things is that we were then like the, the next 
iteration of that was including your pictures inside of like your Gmail and you know email links and including pictures of who you're chatting with as companies trying to get back to creating some kind of connection with you. And I think that that's the part that's missing, right? Is I feel like, especially when you are trying to build a relationship with someone, they want to feel like they know something about you because it implies some sense of trust and some sense of like, they're not like picking somebody because they offer a better solution and a better product and these things is really great and, and important. Right. But at the end of the day, if, in, unless it's just a one-time purchase and even for those, you want to feel like, especially if it's kind of an ongoing service, uh, you have a connection and know who it is that you're dealing with. And I think that that craving for understanding something about what's going on um, is really missing out. And so when we, when we kind of handcuff our employees and tell them, you know, like you're going to get in trouble with legal if you do these things and, you know, you can't do that. It's, you know, at what point do we figure out like where, like where's their leeway, right? I mean, I realize that people mess it up, but like what's the cost of like not even trying? Yeah, the cost is actually pretty high. Um, you know, I, it, legal often gets, and, and for good reason, often gets tagged with the uh, um, kind of saying the department of no. And, and, I, and I, you know, because, you know, you don't get fired for saying no, it's for fired for saying yes to something that goes sideways, right? So legal is very cautious and, and very apt to say no to anything you do. That said, even in the most highly structured, uh, highly regulated uh, industries, there's always stuff you can do. And so the, the key is you have to look, take the long view. You need to go and talk to legal. You need to go and not only do your own research on the thing and what other people are doing, but also have a conversation that doesn't start with, hey, can we do this? The, the conversation should be is, what can we do? How can we open this up and still meet your needs? And it could be something as simple as them having, being in a part of an approval loop initially and then backing off once they have a comfort level. Maybe it's something where there's some kind of regular conversation. Maybe they would be comfortable doing a little bit of this as a test. The idea is it might be fits and starts, but working with the legal department, you can find, you know, if you change it from can we do this to like, well, let's talk about what we can do and educating them and working with them and hearing their concerns and trying to find solutions. Um, you know, fail, you know, Inability to find a workable solution is failure of imagination. There's always a workable solution if you think about it. And if you work with legal and you approach them differently as, as a partner to, to find a solution as opposed to, is this okay? No, okay, I'll come back. Is this okay? No. You know, that, you have to have that kind of approach. And, and I've actually known people who have done this are successful. It's true. I mean, when you're talking about partnering with them, right? Like they don't have any vested interest in the company not growing. And a lot of what we're talking about are things to help make your organization better, more profitable, um, and really expand interest and availability. So they don't have any reason to try to hold you back from success. Um, you know, I think that when you're talking about going to them, you know, Twitter is actually a really good example when people's employees wanted to be like, I work at Costco or wherever, um, now people are like, tweets are my own, right? And like not a reflection of my employer. So like that was kind of where everybody settled as kind of a middle ground was just disclaimer, right? Like, you know, opinions are not representative of my employer, like even though I wanted to be able to tell people where I'm employed. I think that when we're talking about image sharing and doing things like that, you know, legal will probably want to provide some guidelines. But the other idea is, you know, Maybe there are like microsites for your 
for your company or for your employees that are slightly separated from kind of the normal main website or maybe you have other places where your employees can be found so like maybe when somebody is doing chat with your employees or getting to know somebody on your team maybe there's like little bio pages and things like that where they can have a feed of images that are like self-selected that can go in there like maybe there's all these different options and it's really what you said right it's lack of imagination it's if we can't do it my way the way that i'm already doing things today like if you're not just okay with me just doing it my way then like you've said no and it's your fault we're not doing yeah. it like it's not their fault like we need to come up with inventive ways to satisfy the need for both corporate protection and really figuring out a way to be more personal and interact with people because you know as the report shows Images, videos, and the need for like hyper personalized experiences not going to go away. Yeah, you know, and actually, and, and with the explosion of, of uh, messaging platforms that we, we've talked about, and a lot of that again is dark social. These these are not transactions that are open to the public. You need to be able to find ways to interact. If you use Pinterest or Instagram or Snapchat, is kind of harbingers of how we have to interact. A lot of that is is. Uh, responsive marketing, reactive marketing, where you're really trying to capture something that's relatively real time. And so if we're going to really participate in those platforms, even if we have to pay, the content still has to be stuff that those users want. And that's not going to be something that's going to survive uh, the process of days review cycle by multiple people giving their input. So you really do have to find that, um, develop that relationship now and find out what you can do. Because as these uh, uh, messaging platforms take off, if you need to start figuring out how to be a part of that conversation, it's not going to be a long review process. And I don't want to say the thing that's just going to piss everybody off, but I'm going to say it anyway because um, we're nearing end Shocker. of show time. So I can like drop the bomb and then we can end the show, um, cool. <laughs> which is this is where hiring smart people really comes into play, right? Like if you don't, if you want people to be able to respond in real time to real issues and to talk to people in a way that is not going to light your company on fire or you know make you sound like an idiot, don't hire idiots to do your marketing. And I think for a long time we've gotten away with this idea because content was about keyword stuffing and there were like all these marketing playbooks and you could pay to get views and you could do some social and you know whatever. That that's done. So whatever people that you have that have been on your team that you know can't get on board with the way that things are really moving in the world nowadays this is not what they need to be doing because you need dependable people who are passionate about what you're doing who can speak professionally and knowledgeably because i feel like legal would have a million times fewer things to have to tell you not to do if people weren't doing those things to begin with and they didn't have to think like are you going to be that person that needs the do not iron your clothes while they're still on your body tag, right? Like the fact that we had to write that on a tag is super upsetting. The fact that, you know, legal has to tell somebody, please don't tweet dick pics to the company page. Like, why do we need to tell you this? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that the takeaway here is, is uh, don't hire stupid people. It's like the, the famous philosopher Ron White said, you can't fix stupid. You really can't. I love Ron Waite, by the way. So good. The tater salad thing is like my favorite. Yeah, um, if, you haven't, if you haven't watched the Ron Waite tater salad thing, it's, it is time. You it's are terrible. severely behind the curve. I mean, and the, the problem is it's not just hiring stupid people. It's I needed to fill a role because you remember, oh, my God, do you remember the community manager explosion back in the day? 
So everybody needed a community manager and like then it was customer success and then all these roles really popped up and then it was content marketing. So like we went through this evolution of like needing someone and everybody just hired somebody that they thought was socially savvy who had like a bunch of Twitter followers. And I was like, no, stop, yeah. stop doing this. <laughs> like you're just, yeah. you're hiring like, cause companies didn't know what to do because things changed so fast. And instead of being able to learn quickly enough, like who they should really hire. They were like, there's a 25 year old with a Twitter account, get in here and community manage some shit. Yeah. And, and, and that really had a downside. I mean, I knew a few of those folks who went on to do really great things in their own right. But I also knew a lot who I'd have these conversations with and talked about marketing aspects within a community and they had like zero clue. It was just, they were just having and a conversation. So it lacked integration with the other parts of the company. It's like, Okay, that's you get what you, you get what you uh, set out to do. If you don't have a higher vision for your community management, that's what you get. So and the ones who've smart. done great things are like that's the that's the end goal, right? Is like you really want those people who care and have grown that role into something that touches so much more than just responding to complaints on Twitter or like answering something in a forum. Like they have this larger view of what the organization means. And those people are worth their weight in gold because they are probably saving your butt constantly. But the people who aren't good are costing you money. It's better to have zero community manager person, customer success person, I mean, especially back in the day, um, you know, than it was to have somebody who would say the wrong thing or who would start a conversation with you, do some sort of autoresponder and then disappear, which I can tell you was the experience a lot of people had that turned a lot of people off to things back in the day. But that is our show for this week. And of course, as usual, we went over time again. Sorry. Um, Steve, always a pleasure. Um, I think this is Likewise. probably our final show for the year. So I assume we will Aww. see Every, well, I mean, unless you want to get crazy and uh, get on it next week, do like a little Christmas Eve. Can I wear, can I wear an outfit? Can I wear a Christmas I would, themed I outfit? <laughs> I have many sparkly Christmas themed outfits, so we'll discuss whether or not we can make that happen. But thank Excellent. you again. And, um, That's my vote. It, it's, it's always, and something Madonna-esque, but like, exactly. you know, really That's what I'm Family friendly. It's totally family friendly. This show's always family friendly with all the, you know, proper language and appropriateness and lack of bourbon in my drinks. Um, <laughs> but it is, but it is early. I, oh, it's almost cocktail time where you are. I was gonna say it's four forty-five here. I'm, I'm on it. Um, well, we will see you guys soon. And Steve, thank you. Always a pleasure. And peace out, everybody.